The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning, church. My name is Oluyomi Alarape, and I am from Nigeria. And I'm going to be sharing how we celebrate Advent in my country. Thanks to the pastorate for giving me this privilege, and for the old church family for sharing in my story. So I go. When I was asked by a pastor to share how Advent is celebrated in my country, I smiled because I had to process the word Advent in my mind and translate it to what I'm familiar with, and that is Christmas. It was until then that I could understand what he was talking about. So please, allow me to walk you through one of the possibilities of how Christmas is being celebrated in my country, Nigeria. You see... Christmas celebration doesn't start on the Christmas day, but weeks prior to that. As a child, I remember rehearsing the Christmas carols and play before finally performing it on Christmas Eve. We will be happy and joyful as we realize that Jesus came to save the world, including me. We use the Christmas period to reach out to people my family and I would travel to different places within our locality and share the love of Christ. We will bring gifts to the children and watch them smile. We will sing and play. I especially love how their eyes will lit up listening to the stories of Jesus. Eventually, the faithful Christmas morning will come and we all dress up in our Sunday's best to attend the service. In Nigeria, we take Sunday's best very seriously. I invite you to visit any Nigerian church during Christmas, and you might think you've stumbled on a fashion show. The women are elegantly clad in beautifully colored pattern headwear, just like what I'm wearing today. It was difficult getting into my car and coming out, really. <laughs> The men will be dressed in a freshly pressed traditional attire. It is very likely that these special attires were made in preparation for the Christmas with no cost spared to ensure everything is perfect. The gifts given to Jesus by the wise men, you know, they were gold, frankincense, and man. These are gifts given to the king. So in celebrating Christmas in Nigeria, we come to worship as though we are in the presence of a great king. Going to church to give thanks on Christmas Day is very sacrosanct to Nigerians. Even if Christmas Day fell on a Sunday, on a Monday, you would dutifully go to church on Sunday and then come back to attend the Monday Christmas service. Regardless of whatever day the Christmas fell into, you go to church and worship. And worship we did. We sing songs, we dance, we clap. Everyone with, a voice, everyone with a voice can make a joyful noise. We play our tambourines, our shekere, piano, and whatever instrument you can use to worship the Lord. These church services were in short either. We could spend up to four hours in church dancing and worshiping. And not a single person will complain. Everyone sees it as a way of worshiping. It's like if God could give us an old child, what if four or five hours of my time? Dedicating all the time to worship God is part of the process for us. And upon getting back home in the evening, the fun isn't over. We will have an after party and perform a family prayer and worship, followed by extravagant meal, jollof rice and chicken. From very assorted food and meat and drink, there's no such shortage of food celebration. Overall, 
Christmas is recognized as the best of all festivals and celebration in Nigeria. People go out of the way to make it as enjoyable as possible. It is truly the most celebrated season in Nigeria. Despite this, we do not forget the real reason we celebrate Christmas. On the night of the Christmas day, I always reflect and think about the love of God, the awesomeness of having Jesus in my life. This is what makes Christmas significant. We take the birth of Jesus to mean a new beginning, fresh opportunity, and the first and important process in the step to salvation of our soul. Because if Jesus was not born, there wouldn't be anybody to be nailed to the cross. So, what is Christmas in Nigeria? Like everywhere else, Christmas in Nigeria is a time of joy. Not simply because of the gift and toys. Although, yes, a lot of gifts do exchange hands. We do engage in a lot of activities. We make a big deal of Christmas. But really, the real reason for celebrating is because God gave his son to us as a gift. For a Nigerian Christian, Christmas is that time of the year that we give thanks. We thank God for all that he has done for us, and we share his love with members of our community. I'm going to close with this reading from Luke chapter 1, verse 76 to 79. It says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. Thank you. Thank you so much, Yomi. Uh, during this Advent season, uh, every Sunday, our hope is that we're going to have somebody share, just like we just heard this morning, of how Christ is celebrated at Christmas in their own culture. And so, Yomi, thank you for sharing of your culture this morning, but also for exalting Christ in the middle of it. And uh, we're going to be doing that as well with the songs that we sing. And we've got four hours this morning in the service. So uh, let's just kind of settle on in. I invite you guys to stand. privilege of introducing to you now a young man that's relatively new to our fellowship, but you'll be getting to know him more and more. Uh, his name is Isaac Swan, and actually uh, next week at our congregational meeting, we're going to be affirming him into church membership, and this morning he's going to be sharing with us his story of Christ in his life. So Isaac, come on up. God bless you as you share. Isaac Swan, and it's a pleasure for me to share my testimony. Like many Christians, I grew up in a Christian household where we gathered with the church each Sunday. 
When I was five years old, in a Sunday service, I was rescued from darkness into light, accepting Christ's atones for my sin and submitting to his lordship. Since I came to know Jesus, there's been three important seasons in my life that have been instrumental in knowing God and growing in sanctification. In the first season, Jesus inspired me with a passion for living the life that counts. In the second season, Jesus gave me the calling to preach the gospel to the unreached nations. And now in this season, I'm now, and now Jesus has been shaped me into the vessel to carry out his calling on my life. Growing up, it was clear in my family that God was not an idea or a weekly event, but indeed the I am, the definitive, decisive meaning of the universe we owe our lives. My parents were exemplary models in Christian living and their loving marriage, though my dad was especially critical in my spiritual formation. He demonstrated Christ living through him in humility, patience, worship, and spiritual instruction. My dad would constantly remind us that our greatest hope was not that we'd be wealthy, famous, or successful, but that we would love God and have a personal relationship with him. He was deeply invested in our spiritual development. He devoted his time and resources to that end. And one of the ways was learning more about God by going through Bible studies, conference recordings, and sermons together. One of the studies we did was going over a conference series by John Piper called Don't Waste Your Life. John Piper explains his passion to not waste his life and how his meaning and purpose will not be defined by his own desires, but by God. He then explains and defends from scriptures that the essence of the unwasted life is to seek joy in God and magnifying him. The verse that has stuck with me all this time is Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. From my early youth, I was determined that my life would not be defined by my desires and goals, but would be a life determined to magnify Jesus by life and by death and by his desires. It did not take too long for Jesus to put his calling on my life. I was attending a church and while living in the States, and every few Sundays, a lovely couple from the church would come up to the podium during the service and inform the congregation that they'd be holding a course called Perspectives, and that everyone should take it and that it would change their lives. My dad and I decided to take up the opportunity and join the course. In it, I learned that from the Abrahamic covenant, when God blessed Abraham to be a blessing, and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, to Jesus giving the Great Commission, God had always had a heart for the nations and for all people to come to know him. Through the course of another book I read, Unveiled at the Last, God had shown me his heart for the nations and convicted me that in the light of the great spiritual need of the nations and knowing God's hearts for the nations, how I could not remain here. From all this, I knew that the way that I would magnify Jesus would be to go and share the gospel with unreached people groups that had never heard it. Since then, God has been at work in my life to prepare me to go into the nations and preach the gospel. Through a Christian group in my high school, I was blessed by the opportunity to meet Danny Mackay, a mentor who taught me and modeled evangelism and how to share my faith in others. In university, I've had the opportunity to become a leader power to change on the University of Manitoba campus. Further, to grow with others and what it means to be a disciple and learn how to share and go into the campus and share my faith with other people. I am grateful for how God has been working in my life and am eager to see what else God has in store. Isaac, for sharing with us this morning uh, your testimony, and, uh, and thank you, Yomi, for sharing with us as well about Nigeria, and it just seems to me that so often this fall when we have um, just been walking it out, uh, planning services and series of sermons and so on, that uh, God keeps on underlining the nations to us, and um, we are we're reminded of that again this morning. Uh, through what Isaac shared through Yomi, and uh, so praise God for that. Um, welcome here this morning. My name is Terry. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, just want to make uh, one announcement about Christmas Eve. Um, you might be already starting to make your plans, and um, so we're going to be having two Christmas Eve services this fall. 
uh, this fall. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's still fall. I don't know. Um, this Christmas. And uh, we have been hearing from various folks of you that have uh, expressed the, the desire to be here but cannot for various reasons, immunocompromised, etc. And so we're going to be having two services. The first one at 4 o'clock in the afternoon will be proof of vaccination. So you'll, you'll come, you'll still have to register ahead of time online, and you'll come and it'll be proof of vaccination that will be allowed entrance. And then at 6 o'clock we'll have another service just like every other service. You re- register ahead of time and... Uh, There'll be no proof of vaccination required for that. And in that way, we as a leadership, praying and thinking this whole thing through, are really hoping that we're going to hit as many of the whole church as possible that want to celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve with us. So, amen. I'm going to get our PowerPoint up here. And uh, we're going to be talking, of course, today about Advent. Christians have celebrated Advent for centuries, and it's an important way of getting ready for Christmas. The word Advent, Adventus, means coming or arrival. It was often used of the coming of an important dignitary. And um, I couldn't help but noticing that along with the word Advent, it's connected to the word adventure. And the word adventure, of course, brings lots of ideas to our minds. And the word adventure, as I followed the etymology of the word Throughout the centuries, we came to realize that in the 1300s, the word adventure became uh, associated with words like risk and danger and even recklessness. Okay, so there's so there's something implicit in an adventure that could be risky, could be dangerous, it could be even deemed reckless, and so. If you think about that meaning of adventure, we we realize that the Christmas story that we read in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel has all of those features and more. Angelic visitation. Uh, Incredible. The Joseph and Mary traveling to Bethlehem when she's nine months pregnant. Uh, Being born in a barn with, with animals all around you. Shepherds that are out on the hillsides terrified by the angels that are coming and shouting glory to God in the highest, filling the sky with glory of God. Uh, Wise men traveling from a far eastern country, just following a star, and then arriving right over top of the house where Jesus lived. The jealous King Herod, the insanity of this raging king who could not handle any word of another baby king being born in his Uh, precious Judea, and the holy family fleeing from the the town of Bethlehem to Egypt. And then in that aftermath, the the massacre of the innocents, it's called, the little boys that were killed around Bethlehem. Well, if you want adventure, folks, (laughs) there's no shortage of it in the coming weeks as we look at the story of Christmas. Um. But I don't know if we want adventure, do we? I'm not sure that's the Christmases that we plan, is adventure. I think that we tend to sanitize Christmas. I think we tend to remove the smells and the inconveniences, the suffering and the violence. We we prefer to celebrate a G-rated kind of family-friendly Christmas, not so much for the sake of our children, but, but for us. We read the stories in the Gospels and we sing the Christmas carols, but we really want to tone it down to the reality that we read about. I would say that the word that describes the Christmases that we celebrate better than the word adventure is the word nostalgia. <laughs> I think that's the kind of Christmas that we generally want. It's from the Greek word nostos. The word nostos means literally a return to home. That's what nostalgia is. By the 18th century, the word nostalgia had come to be associated with acute homesickness. Okay? Nostalgia is rooted in a longing for things to be the way that things have always been. And who doesn't want a little bit of that at Christmas? Right? Well, we celebrate our traditions. We, we want the warm and cozy. We want a certain kind of tree to be decorated a certain kind of way. We like the Christmas dinner the way mom always made it. We like 
the same people present at the meal if possible. And the baking, well, everybody knows what their favorite Christmas baking is and the best-loved Christmas albums. I mean, how many Amy Grant fans do we have here this morning, right? Or are there some, still some Bing Crosby folks around? Or have you got fixated on Charlie Brown or wherever it was? Beach Boys, I don't know. We want the same stuff. No wonder some people, I'm not going to name them, of course, but no wonder some people overindulge in Hallmark Christmas movies around this time of the year. It's just a little taste of nostalgia that they want. It feeds the nostalgia. And you might be thinking at this point by the time, by now you might be thinking, come on, Pastor. I mean, uh, we've had enough adventure in the lives the past year. Why can't we have a little bit of the normal nostalgic Christmas? And I get it. I get it. We all get it. It's been an extraordinary year. I understand there's a gravitational pull to the comfortable and the cozy and the normal. Something as cozy as that old Christmas sweater, something as sleepy as the little town of Bethlehem, something as warm as chestnuts ro- roasting by an open fire. <laughs> I get it. We all want that. And yet, things do change, aren't they? Things have changed. You changed. And things can't be the same as always. And how do we roll with that change when you can't have all the people present at the family dinner or you can't have the same traditions and so on? And one of the ways that I believe that we're called to as Christians is to navigate those changes is to fixate on the things that don't change. If you've read the NABC, the North American Baptist Conference, first Sunday in Advent devotional that maybe you've received this morning by email, it's talking about a God who never changes. It's talking about the attributes of God. And that's what I think we should be indeed focusing on during these years, these days, I mean, is this focus on, on the fact that God doesn't change, that Jesus is the reason for the season. He's the centerpiece of the whole festivity. And life, the life that Jesus Christ lived on earth, I think, was a balance between a a comfortable nostalgia and an incredible adventure, the kind of adventure that none of us will see in a given lifetime that we have. And I think I'd like to share with you the way that I would unpack it this way, is if you think about the the middle years of Jesus' life, those silent years that we know almost nothing about, we would probably see them as a fairly nostalgic time in the life of Christ. Sleepy, sleepy little Nazareth with mom and dad and other younger siblings working in the carpenter shop. Pretty nostalgic, it sounds like. We don't know. But if you take and unpack the Word of God and look at the first three years of Jesus' life and the last three years of Jesus' life, you will find more adventure than you could ever imagine. Any, than any of us will see in a lifetime. And so, interestingly enough, those two extremities are also the very two most important seasons of the Christian life or of Christ's life. It's the first three years which unpack the adventure surrounding his birth, the incarnation, which Yomi talked about. And then the last three years, which really are his earthly ministry and leading all the way up to his final death and and what he accomplished through that death, the atonement, incarnation and atonement. Incredible. And so it is good for us to pause and think about the adventure. And this year we're going to be talking about these things and I would encourage you to read the whole story of Christmas this year in the Advent. Think about believers from other cultures that we are going to be uh, giving opportunity to share each Sunday. And step beyond some of the traditions and maybe in those stepping beyond include someone new. Our theme this year is Christ for the Nations and our Advent series is going to focus on the different titles that are given to Jesus in the Old Testament. And uh, we're going to be looking at the light of the nations the desire of the nations, the king of the nations, the hope of the nations, and the glory of the nations. And so when we think about the timing of Christ's death, it says in Galatians 4.4 that when the fullness of time had come, 
Christ came born of a woman, born under the law, etc. And that word fullness of time has to do with chronos. In other words, it's related to chronological. Jesus' birth was chronologically exactly when Jesus was meant to be born, when God meant for his son to come to earth. And it's incredible because it follows that incredible long 400 years of darkness and silence when there was no recorded word from God or Scripture. We call it the intertestamental period. Everything that's between Malachi and Matthew. It was this incredible darkness, silence from God. That's why in Isaiah 9, when the prophet speaks in verse 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Indeed, for 400 years they had been walking in darkness before that great light of Jesus Christ appeared. And so we begin today to look at Jesus, light of the nations, and um, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 49, which is not a classical Old Testament prophecy that we read around Christmas time, but it is every bit as much about the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 49, and we're going to read verses 1 to 7, and I'm going to ask you if you'd stand with me, would you? Would you do that now? Isaiah chapter 49, if you're able to stand, stand with me and let me read to you. Isaiah 49 verse 1 says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made me, my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right hand, my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves before you because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. May God bless His Word. You may be seated. Amen. This scripture is sometimes called the Great Commission of the Old Testament, along with passages like Genesis chapter 12. It's called that because in this scripture are all of the same features of the Great Commission found in Matthew 28 and Mark 16, to go and to make disciples of all nations, that God had all nations on his heart, not just one nation And in Isaiah, there is what is called the servant songs, various passages that describe the the word servant, and this motif of servant is is mysterious because sometimes we're not sure what what servant is Isaiah referring to. The Word of God referred to my servant Abraham, my servant Moses, my servant David, my servant the prophets. And in the Scripture of Isaiah 49, Exactly who is it that the servant is in this passage? In verse 3, we would conclude that the nation of Israel is the servant, for it says, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And yet two verses later, in verse 5, it says, Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. Clearly, my servant Israel is not referring to Israel because Israel's not going to gather Israel back to him. It is indeed, many believe, a messianic prophecy. It's Jesus the Christ that is being referred to here. That in the fullness of time and in the line of Israel, Jesus would be sent to gather Israel back to God and be the the embodiment of, of, of Israel, the representation of Israel. And that's what I believe this 
prophecy is all about. And I'd like to say then that if this is about Jesus Christ that would come in the fullness of time, what does it teach us about Jesus? Let's take a look. Number one, it teaches us that Jesus was born of God and named by God. Verse 1 of Isaiah 49 It says, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. And when we open the history books of the New Testament and read the Gospels, we read about an angel that visited a young virgin named Mary and said to her that she was going to be be pregnant and give birth to a son. And she objected and she said, well, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel responded and said, that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and that the power of the Most High God would overshadow her and that the Son to be born to her will be called the Son of the Most High God. In Isaiah 49, 5, again we're told that Christ's birth is mentioned and now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant. You know, it could very well be that when Isaiah penned these words, he's thinking he's talking about himself. Isaiah is thinking that he's the one who was formed by God to be the servant to Israel, to gather them back, for they had wandered away from God. And he was probably right in in saying so. But there was clearly a messianic fulfillment, as we see in so many other passages in the Old Testament. How can this be? Is there a double meaning or is there a single meaning? And the answer is found in what's called dual fulfillment. Dual fulfillment means simply that there was an immediate fulfillment in the time of the life of the prophet who spoke, not knowing about, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a future fulfillment would come, and indeed was, was usually about the messianic age of Jesus Christ's birth. And so that's what this scripture is talking about. A second thing we learn about Jesus from Isaiah 49 is that he was sent by God on mission with God. And there were two parts to the mission of Jesus Christ who was sent to this earth. He would, first of all, gather Israel back to God. And secondly, he would be a light for all of the nations of the earth. Look, first of all, at verse 5. It says to bring Jacob back to himself, that Israel might be gathered to him. Verse 6, to to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved, the remnant of Israel. Clearly, Jesus was sent on mission by God to, to bring his own people back to himself as Messiah and to the living God. But sadly, we know that Israel rejected Jesus. And... Uh, There's prophecies about that rejection as well. One of the most famous is also one of the servant songs in Isaiah, in Isaiah 53. It's it's called the, the servant song of suffering servant. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. John 1.11, it says that he came to those which were his own and his own did not receive him. But to all who received him, He gave the right to become children of God. You see, already we see this focus on Israel going beyond Israel to the nations of the world. But Christ was not only sent to Israel, he was sent for all peoples. And in verse 6 it says, it is too light a thing. Don't you like that? It's too light a thing for the Messiah that you should be my servant only to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. For I will make you a light for all the nations, and my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. There's the Great Commission. The Great Commission in Isaiah's day, as it was in Abraham's day, as it was in Christ's day, falling on deaf ears to many among Israel, and yet reminding us that God has come for the nations. That would be too small a thing for him to save only one ethnicity. It would be way too small a thing for God. It would, it would receive for him only small praise. If only one nation on the planet ever worshipped the living God, Jesus Christ, the eternal creator and so on, it would, it would be too small of a thing for only one people group to come to God through Jesus. No, 
for him to be worthy of much more, he is required to receive praise and glory and honor from all peoples of this world, every tribe, every language, every nation. And so that's why in the New Testament, when we see Paul on his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, having been sent out by another church of Antioch, he arrives at another town called Antioch in Pisidia, and there in Acts chapter 13, he picks up what text to preach from? You got it, Isaiah 49. He picks up the text of Isaiah 49. Why? Because the Jews of the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia have rejected Jesus. They've said, Paul and Barnabas, we're not listening to you. Get out of town. But guess what? All the Gentile peoples were very interested in listening. And so we read in Acts chapter 13, verse 46, Paul says to the Jewish people, he says, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, but since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And he says in verse 6, he quotes Isaiah 49 in, in verse 47, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they started rejoicing and glorifying God. And as many, here's how it ends, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God has always done his work that way, folks. God has always built his kingdom, grown his church, and glorified his son by raising up servants like Isaiah and like Abraham and like Paul and Barnabas to do his work to be the one who brought the light to the nations that were walking in darkness. And every one of us Every one of us who say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, you're one of those servants too. You're in the long line of the Abrahams and Moses and Davids and Isaiahs and Paul and Barnabas. You're in the long line of the servants that God has raised up to be a light to the nations. Anything less than that holy occupation is far below you. Anything less than that all-consuming occupation is below what any one of us were created for and redeemed by Christ for. These are heavy words. The story is told, I read it again this past week, about the first two missionaries from the Moravian Brethren. The first two missionaries from the Moravian Brethren on October the 8th, 1732, a Dutch ship left the Copenhagen Harbor bound for the West Indies. And on that ship were two men of the Moravian church, one named John de Burr, a potter by trade, and the other named David Nishman, a carpenter. And they were both sent by the Moravian church to the slaves of the West Indies to reach them with the gospel of Christ. And they said if it meant that they had to sell themselves into slavery to get into community with those slaves, they were ready to do that. <laughs> I don't get it. Do we get it? When I read a story like this, I feel I have a dabbling faith, not a deep faith. And so they, they said to their comrades on the banks of the harbor in Copenhagen, as they were sailing away, they yelled back, and the words are recorded in history, and they yelled back to their friends in the church on the, on the land. They said, may the Lamb, Jesus Christ, that was slain, receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. What is the reward of Christ's suffering? Think about it. What is the reward that Christ receives from his sufferings on the cross for sinners? Clearly, the reward 
is more praise from more peoples who have red-hot hearts for God and want to give him more glory than they did last month. That's the praise. That's the reward of Christ's suffering. And that leads us then to the final point this morning, which is us. You see, we are sent by God to be lights as well. We are the servants that in the long line of Isaiah and others, we're in the, in the line of, as servants, and, and we, we pick up this theme as, as did Paul in the book of Acts, the theme of Isaiah 49. And we as church, in First Peter 2, 9, we're, said, we're called a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that we might declare, it says, the excellencies of him who called us out of the darkness into the light. That's why we exist. That's what the servants do. That's what the light of the world is called to do, is, is to call people out of darkness into light. Now, some of you probably have seen the study that I'm about to refer to. It's by the Barna Group and also World Vision. And uh, it was a study done this very year by these two groups. And they studied 18 to 35-year-olds, basically the millennial age and the Gen Z age. <clears throat> and so, particularly 18 to 35-year-olds, you can, you can listen up. But I want to see the commonality of so many of us in this category. One of the things that they found, and by the way, this was a study done in many countries of the world. I think there was over 16,000 that were interviewed and surveyed, and I think 1,000 of them were from Canada. And so this is a fairly big study. And um, in the 18 to 35-year-old group of Christians that were interviewed, seven out of 10, seven out of 10 said that they found it difficult to be a person of faith in today's culture. Now, this is many cultures speaking, but worldwide, Christians that are 18 to 35 years of age have said, seven out of ten of them have said they find it very difficult to be a person of faith in today's culture. Indeed, do you know that in the coming weeks, you will come across likely people if you opened up the subject, you would come across people that in this season of time would not think that Christmas has anything to do with Jesus. You know that, that there are Canadians that have that perspective. This is, my mom said that she saw a, a, a picture of, of a group of people looking in through a window at a nativity scene, and the caption underneath it said, these Christians, they have to bring God into everything. You see, it's, it's not understood, folks, so often. And so don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. We're bound to feel out of place in this world and not understood when we talk about this Jesus. We take it so seriously. And we pray to him. And we center our lives around him. We seek to be his servants. In this same study of Connected Generation, 70% of young adults have dropped out of church, organized religion. This is a worldwide thing. 70%, 18 to 35-year-olds say, organized religion, I don't really need that. They're not dropping out of belief entirely. They're dropping out of the church. The study suggests that one in five young adults will not return after the pandemic. One in five. 42% of 18 to 35-year-olds feel loneliness on a weekly basis. Loneliness. Now, the good news is that about the equal amount, 40%, feel deeply cared for. What is the difference between the deeply cared for and those that feel loneliness on a weekly basis? You can answer the question. Almost half of those that were were surveyed, 46% are very uncertain about the future. And one of the biggest um, uniting factors around the entire survey was about leadership in the world, around the issues that matter most to the 18 to 35-year-olds. And in that category, 81% of 18 to 35-year-olds see a crisis of leadership and a deficit of good role models and leaders in every category. 
integrity was at stake. Now you might say, wow, that sounds like a pretty depressing survey, Terry. Thank you for sharing that. See, the good news is that God has already given us as his followers, as a church, the ability to be light in this dark world and for every Christian brother and sister to brighten the corner where we are. In fact, let me read to you just one sentence from the conclusion, which I hope you will receive encouragement from. This is, that, this, is, this is what the conclusion of. It says there's so much, I love this, there's so much beautiful overlap There's so much beautiful overlap between the desires and the needs of 18 to 35-year-old Canadians and what the church could offer them, even with all its imperfections. And the church has much to gain from the gifts, insights, experiences, and leadership of the connected generation. Amen. So much that we could be overlapping on. I was interested to read an article as well in uh, the denominational magazine, North American Baptist Conference magazine called Onward. And a guy by the name of Kent Carlson writes an article and he talks about being at a college-age retreat uh, one this past year. And uh, there were about 20 that were present. And he asked the group of 20 college-age people, how many of you ever invite friends to your church, non-believing friends, to come to church? One out of the 20 said that they have tried it. Another woman said this to him, a young adult said this to Kent Carlson. Um, Let me just read it. She said, Kent, why would I come to a place and have a man who's over 60 years old, no offense, to talk to me for 45 minutes without me being able to interact with him in any meaningful way? No offense taken, I'm over 60. But you know what I want to say to that woman or to Candy? Say, I get it. Now, that, that's a Christian woman that said that to him because she said, she went on to say to him that she has a group of 10 friends who meet online every week from all over the world. They study the Bible together and pray. Now, that's, an, that's, an, that's a Christian young woman that's making use of the Internet in a good way and so on during the pandemic. But I'm telling you that the other unbelieving 18 to 35-year-olds are also connected online with all kinds of other groups. And to those people, I want to tell you, it is not a surprise to me, and I am not offended, that what we do here on Sunday morning, this venue every Sunday morning, is like walking into a foreign country for them. And I I don't blame them. The the first place that they are going to encounter the light is not going to be at a Sunday morning worship service, folks. The first place that they will encounter the light is through the individual 18 to 35-year-olds that they are in relationship with. In the online groups that they are invited into to study the Bible or to talk about God things. Or the, the small groups that meet in person like our young adults do on Monday evenings. That's the first show of light that many of these Gen Z millennials are going to find. God, And I'm not offended. We don't plan Sunday morning to be the attractional model. We plan Sunday morning to get together and worship the Lord Jesus Christ to build up the saints so that they can go out and be the light. You know, God's Word doesn't say... God's Word doesn't say, tell all those in the darkness to come on in where the light is. God sends the light. Christ was sent to the world. Abraham was sent. Isaiah was sent. Paul and Barnabas were sent. You are sent. We are sent ones with the light. Servants of God called to take the the Word of God and the the Spirit of God. Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, God says to us, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify God who is in heaven. Let them see your good deeds. Let them be blessed by you this Advent season. Someone said, good deeds create goodwill 
which prepared the, the ground for the good news. You know, let, let's do that. So as we conclude, let me just tell you a few things that I would love for us to do together this Advent season, this Christmas season. You can plan this in your own families, in your own homes. You can get together with another family from the church and plan it. But I would ask you, don't just let this sit on the sermon notes and be forgotten today. Talk to somebody today about what you might do to follow through during Advent and to make it an adventure. So the first thing you could say is, read the whole story of Christmas. Don't just sanitize it. Secondly, think about how believers from other cultures celebrate Christmas. We're going to be hearing about it weekly. Do you know that God is using immigration to, to, to rouse his church? I read an article someone sent to me just yesterday about how God is using immigration in Ireland to, arrive, to revive the church in Ireland. God is using immigration here to revive the Canadian church, and we're grateful for the way that we have that. Then thirdly, step beyond the traditions that you've had and choose to include some people that you can be a light to. Finally, pray for God to show you the Advent adventure that he might have planned for you this Christmas. If you start praying about it today, seriously, every day, pray about it, I dare say that in the coming week or two, God will have answered that prayer and start looking for the answer. God's going to show you some way that you're going to be a light and you're going to enter into an adventure during Advent that is going to make your Christmas far more wonderful and far more fulfilling because of what God is going to use you to do. May God bless us. Lord Jesus, we celebrate you this morning. You are the light of the world. You are our light. And if it was not for you, it would all be dark. We would be hopeless and we would be separate from God forever. You have brought us light. And we recognize as well from what we've heard today and from what your word says and what your Holy Spirit says to us that you call us to be light to the world for you as ambassadors for our Savior. And I pray that you would work in each of our hearts in such a way that it would be easier and easier for us to say, here am I, send me. That we might say that with joy and in anticipation because it's our experience that when we ask you to show us how to honor you, you give us something. And I pray, Lord, that during this Advent season that you would show us an adventure for your sake, for your glory. You give us the opportunity, that you give us the courage, that you give us the words or whatever it is that we need to show your love in that situation. But may you show us how to honor you. We give ourselves to you, Lord. You are our light. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a wonderful day.